I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of Warriors in Their Own Words. In partnership with The Honor Project, we're bringing this podcast back at a time when our nation needs these stories more than ever. For generations, Americans have answered the call and gone where their country sent them. They've done their very best under sometimes impossible circumstances to serve with honor. In the coming months, we will dive into the archives and bring you stories from wars that have long since receded in our collective memories. We will also bring you new stories from a new generation of warriors who answered their nation's call in places like Iraq and Afghanistan. We owe it to those who fought to record their recollections for posterity. As a nation, we can also learn from what they experienced. Warriors in Their Own Words is our attempt to present an unvarnished, unsanitized truth of what we have asked of those who wear our country's uniform. Thank you for listening, and by doing so, honoring those who have served. On today's show, we'll hear from Jake Wood, currently the CEO and co-founder of Team Rubicon, a disaster relief organization that retrains military veterans to deploy as emergency responders. He is also a Marine Corps combat veteran. He enlisted in the Corps in 2005 and deployed to Iraq and Afghanistan with the 2nd Battalion, 7th Marine Regiment, which suffered some of the highest casualties of any unit during their deployments. My platoon in Iraq was uh, doing what we called dwell ops. We would go out into this part of Anbar province for two weeks at a time, and we'd take over these Iraqi houses and, and turn them into patrol bases for, for three to five days, and then we'd move for three to five days and so on. So one night we showed up in the middle of the night, we knock on this door, owner of the house shows up, you know, it's probably 2 a.m., and we hand him $400 in cash and we say, hey, you know, pack up your family and, and get out of here. Don't come back for, you know, five days. It never felt good to show up at 2 a.m., pound on a door and tell a guy who just woke up that we were, you know, commandeering his house for nearly a week. You know, it, it always felt a little dirty. Uh, you know, we would do our best to, to respect the house. It's not like we would make efforts to trash it. We would do our best to try to return it to some semblance of normalcy at the end. We, would all, we, we were never in a house that didn't get attacked. And I have to imagine that every time we left, you know, Al-Qaeda or the Sunni militias would, would go and ask that guy why he'd let us use his house. And of course he had no choice. You know, he was just a, you know, a helpless participant in, the, in this counterinsurgency strategy. You know, I don't know... Counterinsurgency, that methodology was the only tactic I ever used in, in Iraq. I, I don't have anything to compare it to. I don't know if it was better or worse than, you know, just dropping a bunch of artillery and air support. You know, I think it, I think it largely worked while we were there. But as with everything in war, it's a series of trade-offs. And the trade-off here was that we alienated this man and his family and, and oftentimes, uh, you know, brought combat literally to his doorstep. And I never, I never looked on that with anything but guilt. But yeah, we, we spent all night, like literally all night, transforming this house then into a fortress. You know, we brought in thousands of sandbags and we put them on the roof. We built machine gun positions and the sun started rising and we were just putting the fi finishing touches on it. And, you know, at that point in time, the three squad leaders would get together and we would literally draw straws because immediately a squad would have to go out on a foot patrol 
one squad would have to take uh, post and, and guard the patrol bays. And one squad would get, you know, obviously the, the best job, which was to go to sleep for a couple hours. And so, you know, we draw straws and my squad gets to go on sleep, which was just great. So we, we bed down, we, we got maybe an hour before it gets really hot. So we're trying to get as much sleep as we can. And I'm sitting there, I probably just fell asleep. And all of a sudden there's just this huge explosion and all this dust starts coming down from the ceiling of this, of this house. And we had taken a direct hit from a mortar. Not even a, a, you know, a second later, all this machine gun fire starts pouring in into the house and it was, you know, it's impacting the side of the house. It's shattering the windows and, you know, it's bad. And, you know, we're, we're crawling around on the ground, trying to orient ourselves to what's happening. We're grabbing our rifles, trying to throw on flak jackets and all this stuff. And, you know, a bunch of things happen. You know, I post up near this door at the back of the house and, you know, I can't see anything yet. So I haven't fired my rifle. And all of a sudden I hear this, this guy screaming like a kamikaze outside the house. And I think to myself, oh my God, we're about to get overrun. And so I'm holding up, I hold up my rifle. I flip it off safe onto fire. I raise it into my shoulder. I get ready to, to, you know, blast this guy coming through the door. And I see his shadow, you know, into the doorway. I'm like stealing myself to have to, to shoot this guy. And then I realize that he's screaming in English. So I, I, I pause and our, one of our corpsmen, one of our medics tumbles in through the doorway with his pants around his ankles. And he's like scrambling and half crawling, half running down this, this small little entryway. And, and he rolls and he pauses right at my feet. And I look down and I said, Jesus Christ, doc, I almost blew your brains out. And I realized that he'd been out there you know, using the restroom because we'd have to duck him, take a pit. He, he, he quickly, he quickly relays that he had this terrifying choice to make between, you know, taking a moment to wipe and possibly staying out there a moment too long and, and getting killed or taking that moment to wipe and dying with dignity. And so in the middle of this firefight, again, machine gun rounds still pouring in. I asked him, so what did you do? He goes, I wiped. What did you think I did? And so then, you know, maybe, maybe another couple minutes go by and the, the shooting subsides. I'm walking back through the house and I walk towards the front of the, the building where our small little operations center was so I could speak to the lieutenant. And as I'm walking by, I see one of the other squad leaders, a good buddy of mine, Jeff Muir. And he's sitting there and he's, you know, he's wearing a white tank top and his, his pants are, you know, barely hanging on. And he's got this dumbfounded expression on his face and he's got this toothbrush hanging out of his mouth. And I said, Jeff, what, you know, what are you doing? Where's your flak jacket? Where's your weapon? And he, and he sat there and he paused and he thought about it for a moment. And he said, you know, when the shooting started, I was brushing my teeth and my toothbrush flew out of my mouth and I sat here for 10 seconds looking at one side of the room that had my toothbrush and the other side of the room that had my rifle and I had to choose which one to go and get. He goes, and I realized that the Marine Corps would get me a new rifle, but it wasn't going to send me out a new toothbrush. So here I am. <laughs> and he just started brushing his teeth again and walking away as if nothing had happened. And, and that's when I realized that, uh, you know, we, we, been in far too much combat for for any of these things to to really make us you know shocked anymore
Hello, my name is Peter Zablocki, and I'm a historian, author, and college professor. I'm thrilled to invite you to check out Evergreen Network's History Shorts podcast. Every Tuesday and Thursday, join me on a journey through time, exploring the little-known and hidden gems of history. In each bite-sized episode, I'll dive into my original research to bring you intriguing historical curiosities you've probably never heard of, uncovering the fascinating stories that have shaped our world from forgotten figures to overlooked events. And the best part? I've condensed all this historical goodness into manageable chunks, perfect for your on-the-go lifestyle. Whether you're commuting to work or squeezing in a quick break, History Shorts fits into the little time you probably think you don't have. Subscribe now and never miss an episode of the History Shorts podcast, available wherever you get your podcasts. So in Afghanistan, I was a, a, a member of a, of a sniper team. And, and so the six-man team, we were charged with going out on these missions, often at night, sometimes for multiple days, and you know, either support active operations in the area by providing kind of overwatch and, and kind of unseen eyes and ears for commanders, or you know, we were actually out there trying to track and hunt insurgent and, and Taliban forces. And every once in a while, we'd get a tip or we'd get intelligence that, you know, hey, you know, this this bazaar is going to have, you know, a, a big weapons transfer or, hey, the Taliban is going to be moving in three vehicles through this this valley or this wadi, you know, within this time frame. And so we get some more kind of specific mission sets. And in one such circumstance, our team was was sent out to uh to set up a firing position on this hillside overlooking this, this valley with the expectation that the Taliban was going to be bringing in some fighters and some weapons from, you know, the Pakistan border into the area that we were in. And so, you know, this was seemed like a big opportunity. The intelligence sounded sound. And so we, you know, we set up the mission. We, we did, you know, looked at the satellite maps and, identified the part that we wanted to, to sneak into. And it was going to be a really tough insertion. So we were going to have to pack three days of food and water, move about 10 kilometers over really, really rugged terrain, and then move up onto this mountainside. And it was super rocky and dig in these, these firing positions. And we were all going to have to do it at night. So the time frame was, was limited that we had to, to execute this insertion. And so we sat around this, this Afghan patrol base uh, waiting for the sun to go down. And I remember we were, we were waiting for, for it to get dark enough. And we sat around and we watched the movie The Notebook, which is probably the least masculine movie in the history of the world. We have six snipers sitting around the laptop watching The Notebook. And then we get up and we pack our stuff. We get ready. We gear up. We paint our faces. And we set out to go on this super dangerous mission. It was just such an interesting dichotomy. But we go out and, and, you know, we have this really tough, careful insertion over, I don't remember if it was eight or 10 kilometers where we have to remain undetected. It's, you know, largely enemy controlled air, you know, territory. So we're sneaking through. And this is also one of the most heavily landmined parts of, of Afghanistan. So there was just danger with literally every footstep that you took. And then we picked our way up this mountainside. And again, you know, we've got 80 pounds of, of gear on our backs you know, we're carrying our weapons and we're just crawling kind of, you know, on all fours up this mountainside, trying to be as, as quiet as possible. 
And finally, we get to the area that we had designated where we were going to set up these firing positions. And we had to dig two firing positions to hide these six snipers. And so we, you know, we identify the two areas about 50 meters apart from one another and we start digging in. But we have to be so careful because, you know, at night, particularly in these valleys and on these mountainsides, sound carries so far. And so we were just gingerly picking up every rock and quietly moving it, you know, 50 feet away and, and depositing it slowly. And then taking our, our small shovels and, and slowly, agonizingly slowly digging out, you know, this gravel and the sand and this earth and putting it on ponchos to be, again, to be carried away because the, you know, those overturned rocks and earth could be visible to people walking by. It's just like this most painstaking process. It's taking hours and hours and hours. And finally, you could start to see the sun just start to crest the horizon and dawn was, was approaching. And so we realized that we were running out of time. And so we, you know, we quickly, you know, finished the job. We, we put kind of a, a hide cover over it and we settled into our firing positions. Super proud of this job we just done. I mean, this was a really intense insert, really intense build up against the clock, racing the sun. And so the, the sun's just about to rise. And, and this is the time of day when all of the shepherds and the farmers start to come out. And, you know, so the, it, the community becomes active. So we're sitting there and there's not a sound. And then all of a sudden I hear this crinkling plastic as if somebody's like ripping open a bag of Doritos. And we're sitting there in my hide and we're looking at each other and we're, we're, we're not even speaking or whispering. We're like mouthing to each other. What the hell is that? And it keeps going and, and you could tell whoever was making the sound was super self-conscious about it. They would start and they would stop, they would start, they would stop. And then I hear carry on the wind, somebody chomping into a snack and we couldn't believe it. So finally, so frustrated, my, my team leader gets out of his hide and he marches over to the other hide 50 feet away and he rips open the, the cover and he looks in and my best friend is sitting in there, Clay Hunt. He had packed in a sleeve of Girl Scout cookies, thin mint Girl Scout cookies that had melted during the day and melted together and then, then reformed as a singular log of thin mints at night. And he was, he was eating it like a, like a bratwurst and, and making enough sound to notify the entire Afghan countryside that six snipers were sitting up on the hillside you know, looking for bad guys. And I, I swear, we almost, we almost grabbed him by his neck and threw him down the hill. But, uh, you know, God, that was, that was one of those moments. You know, most people don't realize that combat isn't all fear. So much of it is just comedy. Even in these moments of like these dire circumstances, there's so much comedy that happens that you just have to take that moment to laugh. Um, and I'll always remember that story. You know, I look back at that. I look at the guys that were on that mission, guys that mean so much to me then and, and today. And, you know, that was a story. Clay, you know, the anti-hero of that story, you know, he ended up taking his own life back in 2011. And I, I told that story at his funeral because it was just, another, you know, like combat. It was one of those moments that needed levity. And, uh, you know, it was something that brought a smile to his parents' face. One mission 
you know, we were providing Overwatch for a big Marine Corps operation. And so the, the night before we, we snuck into the area, set up a hide in a, in a home. We were providing Overwatch on this home that was up on a, a cliff top and looking down into this village that the Marines were moving through. And, you know, so the next morning the Marines moved in and, and there was a, a firefight as the Taliban resisted. And we observed as this, this one Taliban leader was directing these children to run back and forth across the battlefield and carry messages, um, carry ammo and weapons to the front lines. And they were carrying messages because, you know, the, the Taliban would use these radios that they knew we could intercept all the messages on. And so they would do this oftentimes because, you know, they knew that we wouldn't, of course, harm these, these children. And, and there were a few moments when we had to, you know, watch what was happening and make tough choices. There was, you know, one point when a, a young girl moved to, to pick up a, a rocket propelled grenade that had been dropped by a fighter, you know, and, and as you're sitting there and you're watching this battle unfold, you have to think to yourself, you know, who is she going to give that RPG to and, and what's he going to do with it? And, you know, if a Marine gets hurt by that RPG, is that something I can live with? And ultimately we didn't, we didn't fire on that girl. Thank God. Um, and no Marine was hurt that day, you know, by an RPG. Thank God. But those were the types of impossible choices we, we would face. And then, you know, eventually the, you know, the fight ended, the Marines were withdrawing and we had a, we had an attack helicopter surf, circling overhead. So rather than wait for darkness to sneak back out of our hide, we were able to just kind of leave in broad daylight, which was pretty rare. And as we were exiting this house, my team leader looked back down into the village and saw that Taliban leader who had been directing the kids. And so he and I, we got down into position and we were looking at this guy through our rifles and he was surrounded by five or six kids. And I remember, you know, my team leader, uh, you know, Sergeant Sean Beidler, a man of unimpeachable integrity. I mean, honestly, one of the most honorable people I've ever had the, the opportunity to meet. You know, we confirmed that it was the same guy and Sean made the decision that we were going to shoot him. And he didn't make that decision lightly. I think he wished he wasn't faced with the decision, but, but we were, we don't get to choose those scenarios. So we, we just went through our routine. I called the shot as his spotter and he fired and, uh, you know, it was a fairly easy shot. It was 200 meters away and the, you know, the leader was killed instantly. And the thing that I'll always remember is that in one moment I'm staring through that scope and there's this Taliban man and six kids. And a minute later, the only thing that's left is a blood stain on the wall where he'd been standing and the kids sprinted in every direction. And their screams were just echoing off the valley walls, you know, just echoing and echoing and echoing. And they just kept screaming and screaming and screaming. You know, it's, it's those sensory moments and memories that really sear themselves in, you know, the sound of those kids screaming. Those are the things you remember. That was Jake Wood. Following his tour in Iraq, Jake was awarded the Navy Marine Corps Commendation Medal with Valor. He received a combat meritorious promotion to the rank of corporal and left the Marine Corps as a sergeant. He is now the CEO of Team Rubicon and author of a memoir, Once a Warrior. 
Warriors in Their Own Words is a production of Evergreen Podcasts in partnership with The Honor Project. Our producer is Isabel Robertson. Audio engineer is Sean Rule Hoffman. Special thanks to Evergreen executive producers Joan Andrews, Michael DeAloya, and David Moss. I'm Ken Harbaugh, and this is Warriors in Their Own Words. Hello, this is Gary Chahot welcoming you to check out the French History Podcast. Our main show covers the history of France from the first humans until present. If you liked Mike Duncan's The History of Rome and wanted a similar program covering the land of beauty, culture, and love, we are exactly that. We also host world-renowned scholars who have delivered guest episodes on their specialties, including 18th century pirates, revolutionary booksellers in 20th century Paris, the special friendship between the Marquis de Lafayette and Thomas Jefferson, and numerous others. Learn what you love and listen to the French History Podcast today.